Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hola. Bonjour. Ni hao. Guten Tag. Privet. Moi. Halan. Namaste. Oh. Hello, welcome to the new normal, not normal podcast from me, Oliver Phelps, and me, James Phelps. Now, if you've listened to our last podcast, Double Trouble, you'll know we love talking to inspirational people about their lives. But in this series, we want to carry on doing that, but also do something a little different. Uh, don't worry, Oliver's rants are still going to be here, and my good old did you knows. So, what is normal, not normal, all about? Well, very good question. As identical twins who grew up on the film sets of the Harry Potter films, you could say that we didn't have the most normal start to life. No, but we've been wondering recently, what is normal anyway? Yeah, so in this season, we're talking to friends, colleagues and personal heroes to find out what their version of normal is and to ask, hey, does normal even exist? Yeah, I mean, perhaps we're all a little bit not normal. Especially you. I'm not the one with a child's toy in the background. Where? That big Lego roller coaster in the background there, mate. Uh, 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 no, no, no. That is not a child's toy. You have to be at least 14 to do that one. Jolly good. I can remember when, uh, when we did the Double Trouble podcast, we had a lot of very nice people messaging saying, this is my kind of escapism. I can remember someone said, well, it stuck with me saying, I'm just a normal nurse in accident and emergency. And that blew my mind because that that's not normal for, for me to hear about. So what would be great is if we can explore this and, and prove that what we think anyway is that everybody's normal is not normal to anybody else. So that makes it unique, which makes it exciting and something that everybody else is interested in. Exactly. Indeed. So what have you been getting up to since we last spoke in these airwaves, James? I've had a good time, actually. So obviously lockdown happened again in the UK and everything was still affected by the COVID situation. <gasps> you mentioned it. You mentioned a swear word. What? We don't, we don't mention COVID here. Well, you can't get away from it, can you? Unless you stay safe and wear a mask. So I've been uh, able to do a lot of cool things, actually, while while I've been here for the, the summer and the winter, and here we are. Uh, I've been out on my road bike quite a lot. I've been clacking, clocking up the... Clacking? Clacking, clacking, clacking. Gathering the kilometres under my belt. Uh, I've been doing quite a bit of Lego. I have been stargazing, obviously. Mm -hmm. In fact, there was an amazing thing the other night when Saturn and Jupiter got very close together. Uh, Not going to happen for another 80 years. Random did you know facts straight away. Yeah, but they say that though, because every now and then they, they, I, you always get a thing from like space observatory and say, oh, look at the moon. It's never going to be this close. It's never going to be this bright for another millennia. Hmm. And then literally, I swear, like two day, two or three years later, it's the biggest moon ever, solar flare ever. Yeah, it's all this stuff. And it's like, is it really? Or do they just make this thing up to keep people looking up? Well, a, a moon can't have a solar flare, Oliver. That's from the sun. Well, no, I know. I was obviously the, that comes from the sun. But what I'm saying is that they always that something always seems to come up like the biggest ever, or, or it's a super moon. It's like fish in a goldfish bowl. They're being precise, aren't they? Yeah. It's like why it's like, it's like how Pluto got downgraded from being a planet. Yeah, which through my through my science at school. Anyway, let's not go into that one. I think the biggest thing though that happened in between the last season and now is I've had a haircut, mm. which was uh, new new, new at the time. Uh, so Oliver and I, without spending too much detail, we, we did a, a job in Germany, which we can't talk too much about, but it was very exciting. And unfortunately, I had to cut my hair. But I'm still long hair at heart. <laughs> Oliver? I've been getting into quite a bit of rhythm, actually, lately. Rhythm? Do you want to hear it? Oh, God, no, not that thing. As it's the start of this new season, the Japanese drum is back from last season, so one for every hit that hopefully we'll be having this season. Still going, still going, still going. Next piece, next news, next news. James, do you want to tell us about our lovely guest today? Do you want to, do you want a drum roll? No, I don't. Okay. So 
we're especially interested in guests who had not really the most normal childhood and stepped into the limelight at an early age. I think we can think of a few people who are like that. But today's guest knows all about that. Yes, she does. The amazing Mara Wilson, who starred in such films as Mrs. Doubtfire, The Miracle on 34th Street, and Matilda alongside Robin Williams, Richard Attenborough, Danny DeVito, all before the age of 10. And since then, she's become a successful writer and a mental health advocate. And I cannot wait uh, to speak to Mara. I've heard a lot of her stuff uh, on other podcasts and read some of her readings as well. And I'm so super excited about this one. Very much. So Mrs. Doubtfire was released around about eight years before the first Harry Potter film. So just as the internet was starting off. So I'm really interested about how that affected her experience of fame as a child, because obviously it wasn't as instant for social media and things like that as it is today. Exactly. And I suppose I also want to talk to her about our mutual friends. So director Chris Columbus and producer Paula Dupre-Presman, who both worked on Mrs. Doubtfire and the Harry Potter films. So without further ado, everybody, please welcome the legend that is Mara Wilson. I hate that drum. Mara, thank you for joining us today. I hope you're well. Thank you. Yes, I am. I'm I'm as as well as everything can be right now. But uh, yes, I'm doing very well. Thank you. I hope you guys are well too. Good. Yes. Oh, good. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. I was waiting for Oliver to say he's okay as well. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. sorry. <laughs> don't let me get a word in. Yeah. No, thank you, Mark, for uh, for joining us today. And I must say, it's a fantastic background you've got there. Thank you. Yes, it is. It is in fact my closet. Um, yes, it's uh, it's uh, it is my studio. I do a lot of VO, and this is where I record also. Uh, but close absorb sound, right? Exactly. Exactly. What I was going to say, it's normally the best way to to muffle anything for uh, for good audio. You need something to capture all the bouncing out sound. It is. I'm trying to think if I've got like I've got like dresses I've worn to premieres here, and um, and uh, I have my old show choir dress from uh, the, like my the early 2000s. So I was 15 at the time, and like. It looks like something out of Glee because it is something out of Glee, basically. <laughs> and yeah, and probably one of my cats will be scratching at the door at some point, being like, let me in. So uh, just just be prepared for that. Excellent. But, More the yeah. merrier. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I don't know whether you know this or not, but we've actually got a couple of mutual friends. So Chris Columbus yes. uh, obviously directed Harry Potter and he directed Mrs. Doubtfire. And then Paula Dupre Pesman. Oh my gosh. Who helped work on, she was the producer as well. So yes. yeah, by the time they got to us for the first Potters, they obviously well adapt to working with, with kids and everything. So what are your memories of working with those guys? Oh, they were very good with kids. That was something that I, I really uh, I really loved about them. Uh, Chris Columbus was great at working with kids and he had kids himself. And I think as a child actor, I kind of got the sense who knew what to do with kids and who didn't. Mm-hmm. Like Chris Columbus knew what to do with kids. Michael Ritchie knew what to do with kids because he directed Bad News Bears and a bunch of movies involving kids. Danny DeVito had kids too, you know, and and they all knew how to make it fun and to keep me involved. So yeah. I think on sure. all of those films, they would have me do like really creative things and they would encourage that, uh, especially especially on Matilda. Danny DeVito was always saying things like, you know, can you design a doll for Matilda or can you write a story about this or can you can you maybe do this? And uh, and that was that was something that was so good because there's so many times, I think, when you're filming that you you can feel a little out of control because uh, there's so many things going on. But yeah, and I think I was very lucky and maybe in some ways uh chris columbus kind of spoiled me because he was so nice (laughs) and uh and he he was so good at working with kids i mean he just come off of home alone which you know obviously has macaulay culkin but so many other kids as well like i was sharing the the uh the questions that uh you you wanted me to prep on and uh and i was sharing it with my sister and my sister was like i don't know i think you're pretty normal and i was like okay but think about our life think about how like think about how i met the queen (laughs) You know, think about how when when you know when you were seven. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Hang on. Yes, uh, yes. Laura, you, gotta, you can't, you can't, you can't just drop. How did we meet the Queen? Come on, give us something on that one. How did you meet Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II? Yes, um, I, I met her at a at a uh, premiere at the premiere uh, of Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street in London. Uh, so the first time I went to London, I met the Queen, uh, <laughs> and I mean we were not. We were not a wealthy family. We weren't a family that could afford to go to London. You know, we were a family that went camping. So we were thrilled mm. when we went to London. We were so excited, uh, but we loved it. We had so much fun. And yeah, and I had to be trained how to address the Queen. And I think it was, I think it was uh, Sir Richard Attenborough who must have invited her. And yeah, I, I mean, so. 
yeah, the, the Attenboroughs are, you know, there's, there's that family is incredible, you know, a lot of yeah. talent in that family. And he was so kind and so nice. Like, and I grew up Jewish, so he was kind of the only Santa Claus that I ever knew. <laughs> right. But he was very, yeah. So, so we came there and I had to be prepped. I know, I knew that I had to curtsy and I, I, I spent time practicing my curtsy and, uh, and you're not allowed to speak to the queen until she speaks to you. And, yeah. uh, and, uh, you're just supposed to say, please to meet your, your majesty. And she came up to me, but the thing is, she came up and um, and we we were all like excited to see her. And she came up to me, but she asked me a question and I didn't know what to do. And she's just like, like in person, she seems, I mean, she's like majestic, but also just seems kind of like, like nice and grandmotherly, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So, so she came up to me and she said, oh, hello, are you in the movie too? And I couldn't answer her because all I said to say, so I just curtsied and said, pleased to meet you, your majesty. And, and I don't know if I smiled or nodded or anything, you know, obviously she saw me in the movie. So yeah, I also met Sylvester Stallone that night, which was interesting. What? It was a very interesting night. Yeah. 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 It was a typical, very interesting typical night. Typical night out in London then. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And, and I, I came home, I came home and I was like, I met the queen and people were like, you, you what? <laughs> Cause you know, even in America, that is a very big deal. And, uh, sure. and that is something I remember when I was applying to, to, uh, you know, to colleges and universities, one of the things they did to prepare us for college auditions was they said, you have to make a list of 20 interesting things about yourself. And so I listed like a bunch of really boring things. And then the middle of it, I put, I met the queen and they were like, yeah, Mara, lead with that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think I also was taught, like my mom was always like, you have to be modest. So I didn't want to lead with these things. And I'd had people tell me before, oh, it sounds like you're bragging when you talk about going to Danny DeVito's New Year's Eve party. So I was like, oh, okay, well, I don't want to brag. I, I, I have mm-hmm. to be the nice girl. I can't be, you know, I, I can't be boasting about these things. But they were like, no, when, when people are asking you for interesting things about yourself, lead with the interesting things about yourself. But then again, though, but going, going back to like what we're talking about, about normal, not normal, your normality mm-hmm. at the time, that was yeah. your normality, you know, just because it wasn't. It- it Joe, was. I mean, obviously, obviously, I mean, I don't mean obviously hanging out with um, with the Queen and Sly yeah. on a daily basis, but do, you know, <laughs> but, do, 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 do you know what I mean? But like, it was it was normal for you to be to go to something like that because you're part of it. Well, I had this weird view of what, yeah, I had this weird view of what normal was because my parents would always downplay these things because they they wanted to keep me normal. So mm. I I still shared a room with my sister, and it was sort of like my brothers like what, whatever my brothers accomplished at school or what my sister accomplished in art class and dance class was po- sort of put on the same level as everything I did. So it was like, okay, yes, Mara is, is in the opening number at the Academy Awards, but uh, Danny just won his track meet, you know? Right, and, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and uh, you know, the boys all got straight A's and, and uh, you know, and Joel's playing the guitar. You know, isn't that amazing? And 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 it was. He, he's very good at guitar. But it was uh, it was kind of all on the same level as the things that I was doing. And uh, and the kind of my family kind of got to come along for the ride, which was nice. You know, they got to have fun experiences with me too. And sometimes I feel sad because I feel like it was probably hard for them at some points. But. Uh, but I think my parents were like, like, if I said to my mom, like, I'm the greatest, I'm so good. She would be like, shut up. No, you're not <laughs> like, you're not, you're, you're don't, don't say that about yourself. Don't, don't ever get a big ego. That was, that was like her number one priority. And that's why I kind of went from meeting the queen to back to sharing a bedroom and going to my state school and yeah. just, you know, going to dance classes and being really terrible at dance classes and, uh, and trying to keep it as normal as possible. That was, that was the goal. Normal was the goal. So we went back to your your first feature film. Yeah, Mrs. Doubtfire. Possibly one of the best films I've ever made. Thank you, thank you. I I mean that's that's and that's again how I kind of stumbled into these things because I didn't think it would be that huge. My my mom my mom only let me audition for that because she didn't think I would get it. Oh wow! Uh, but we went through as as I'm sure you know, Chris Columbus is a very he's very exacting. He's very precise. So he he knows what he wants. So I went through so many auditions with that. And eventually they flew us from LA up to San Francisco for a screen test. And I think they tested out with other kids. And there were some kids there that I really liked. But I remember as soon as I met Matt, uh, as soon as I met Matt Lawrence and Lisa Jacob, I was like, these are my family. Yeah, this this is my family right here. And uh, I think that Chris Columbus sensed that well, because I remember thinking to myself, I want to get this like I made a secret wish. I was like, okay, I want to get this, but I want them to get it too. Right. And that's exactly what happened. 
I, I was five years old. I had done a couple of commercials. It was a huge open call. Uh, we didn't think I would get it. And it, I think it was the first movie that I auditioned for. Uh, and and I got it. It was, uh, it, and it was very strange. And I think that my family kind of treated it as like a fun experience, but I, I had no idea yeah. what was going to happen. And I had no idea that it was going to be huge. I was going to say, it's really nice to hear because that's exactly like Oliver and myself for the Potter. <laughs> that was, it was a big open audition. Literally our family thought, ah, let's have a go. Let's see what happens. It's a day off school at worst. Yeah. So we had, um, so yeah, that's, I've, that's really, and it's amazing. It's probably with the exact same people that we saw. Yeah. Probably yeah. So, Paula, you talked about Paula. Yeah, Paula was. Paula was, was and um, well, I did actually just look at it. Janet Hutchinson was the casting director. Oh yes. who was the lady yep. who casted us in Harry Potter. Again, it was a big open call, and we went to the first audition, and it was like a sliding doors moment, and there was like a door on the right which just opened, mm-hmm. and we waited hours to see anybody, and uh, yeah, door on the left opened, and we were next in line to go on the left, so we said, "Oh, we'll just go here." Okay, and we went to the door on the left, and yeah, it's Janet Hutchinson who was who saw us, and then yeah. many years later, we we met up with her for a for a drink, and she said, "I kind of knew as soon as you walked in that you had the look, and then we just yeah. need to see if if it went through the rest of the motions with it." Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, and you guys really did. I mean, I remember when I saw the movie, like every now and then, I would be like, "Okay, well, they didn't really look like the way that I imagined," and you know, maybe I imagined them a little bit differently, but like as soon as we saw it, we were like, "Oh yeah, that's the Weasley twins." That's the Weasley twins, of course. Like they, they just have it. They have, they have the mischievous air. They have the the chemistry. They, you know, they have the redheadedness. They have like, you know, I think I think probably one of my favorite scenes is um is uh in uh, Prisoner of Azkaban when yeah. uh when you guys notice Harry walking in the snow yeah uh and wrestle him down yeah that's probably one of my favorite scenes yeah, yeah. in in the whole series because it's just like you guys know you're up to something. <laughs> I, I I'm kind of wondering with you guys like. Because Mrs. Doubtfire, we didn't know it would be big. Like, we knew Robin was funny. And we knew Chris Columbus had just come off of, you know, some very successful films. But, I mean, Harry Potter was this massive thing at the time. There really wasn't anything bigger. Did you, so you you probably had to grapple with the fact that it was going to be huge. You already knew it was going to be huge. We kind of knew that it would be successful, but I I don't think anyone really had a say that it would be, like, on the first day of shooting or when we did the first read-through, that it Mm -hmm. would be now, you know, 20 years later since we started filming them that it's yeah. still got a life of its own it's still got an, an entity of itself so it's um yeah it was one of those things i suppose in hindsight how did we even think that it would get to where yeah. it was but in another way we can't you kind of just assume that it will yeah i mean it was it was also what like a 10 15 year commitment for you guys yeah from the from from the outset it was going to be a two-year like a two film contract mm-hmm. and then gradually you could see the you could see the wheels starting moving quicker and quicker and like okay we're, yeah. we're going to be dying our hair for a lot longer than, <laughs> than 24 months now oh you're not so neither of you are neither of you are gingers no so again going back to the casting side of it yeah we literally walked in and it was we had mousy colored hair um we were wearing these we were wearing these t-shirts that we bought on the day because when we got there we realized we were the only set of twins who weren't wearing the same clothes and we pretty much wore these same shirts every audition so whether by the end of it the casting uh, department and um david uh, david hayman the producer and chris columbus thought god these guys need the job don't they i don't know i don't know because like apart from our school uniform we never dressed alike did you have like a very if, and stop me if this is getting too personal did you have a very like no. twinny life or were you very separate people we never dressed the same we support totally separate soccer yeah. teams um but other than that obviously sometimes you you do have similar interests i suppose that's what you're exposed to like i'm yeah. sure you and your sister have got similar interests as well because that's yeah. what you would be exposed to younger on but other than that i mean like the whole telepathy thing that's just <laughs> that's just crap um, like that whole side of it you know um yeah. but you know other than that i don't think we're really i don't think we're 20 now a lot, i bet a lot of people would say oh you definitely are yeah it's funny you guys did have good chemistry though that's the thing i think you can definitely tell like um like i don't really like the movie donnie darko but one thing i like about that movie is maggie gyllenhaal and jake gyllenhaal are siblings and you can tell i think a mm. lot of times when people play siblings uh on in movies uh, they don't have that kind of chemistry. So, because there's, there isn't the familiarity there. So, and sure. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but I saw a lot growing up in, in uh, LA where people would get cast to play siblings and, uh, and they clearly had crushes on each other and it was so gross. <laughs> it was like, guys. Yeah. And the director just wasn't thinking about it at all. I was like, oh, this is so gross. They so clearly like are, are dating in real life. And ugh, that's, that's so nasty. 
Yeah. That happened a lot, I think, on like <laughs> Disney and Nickelodeon shows. Uh, they, they never advertised that, but you could kind of tell. Yeah. Funny yeah. they didn't advertise that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. It would have ruined so many things. So growing up on, um, again, doing all this crazy publicity stuff for mm -hmm. all these huge films. Yeah. What was it like? Were your, your folks very keen to protect you from what people were saying yes. or what they were asking you and, and all that kind of stuff? So I can, I can imagine some people like journalists and I use that quotation thing because some of these people who, who ask questions without even thinking, I wouldn't even call them a journalist. Yeah. How did they protect you? Because I remember we were, we were pretty lucky in regards to press asking us questions. They're always pretty nice. But I remember we were once at, a, at an event and there was quite a, a well-known actor there who wasn't in any of the pots. We'd never met him before. And we were all waiting for our cars to leave. And this guy's car wasn't there for yeah. five minutes. And he literally started throwing a hissy fit in front of everybody. And every, wow. it seemed, it was weird. Like people were kind of like, oh, oh, it's calm down. And my dad literally just out loud kind of pulled his drag sweat. So no, you don't want to be associated with someone like that. Come on. And then they were, yep. everyone was kind of like, oh, he, he loud as well, wasn't it? He was loud. So everyone heard him. As yeah. Well. It was kind of <laughs> making him know that he's a bit of a prat. And, uh, I've seen yeah. that I've seen this certain actors ever like since at uh, another event, and I always want to say to him like, "Do you remember when you pulled a bit of a paddy?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's um, I, I mean, they definitely did want to, and they definitely did want to keep me from that. And I think my mom, my mom really tried her hardest to to do those things. She really tried her hardest to do these and to stand up for me. Uh, but a lot of it was like, you have to be good. You have to be good. You have to be well behaved. And I think that kind of got into my head to a degree that might have been unhealthy. Like I, I was, I became kind of a people pleaser and I also was very afraid. Like I never had a rebellious phase really as a teenager. I mean, I guess I did a little bit, but I was so scared. So I would only, like I had a friend, my, my friend Allison from boarding school, like as we got older, like, and we like tried alcohol for the first time, it was with her. Like everything was with her because I knew that I could mm. trust her. And, um, and I, but I still had, and I probably still do have trust issues because you don't know who's going to turn around and tell it to people. And I, I think, I mean, I don't think I'm a big enough draw that anybody cares, but I knew that there were like a lot of little girls who looked up to me. So like when I would be at parties in college, like even after I could legally drink, if I had a drink in my hand, I would duck out of the way when they took a picture yeah. because I was like, I, I was like, I, I can't be seen drinking. Mm. I can't be seen, you know, and I didn't do, I never did any drugs or anything. And, um, I was very quiet about, you know, my love life. It's good. It's why I spent a lot of my, you know, teens and twenties out of the out of the public eye, uh, and I think that was good. But it was also, it it also made it made things difficult sometimes because I still felt like I needed to be the good girl. But um, but I am the kind of person where uh, I'll, I'll tolerate things up to a point, and then I'll get really cranky about it. <laughs> so you know, you need to be. It, 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 instead of being like, I would be very passive. And then later on, I would be like, oh, this sucks. And they were like, well, you said you were okay with it. And I was like, yes, because I had to be nice. Yeah. But I mean, I still am. I still am like nice to people and like, and, and nice to fans and things like that. But I also think that like for a very long time, I kind of didn't understand why people were fans of me right? because I didn't feel like I was anybody special. I didn't feel like I had accomplished anything. I had imposter syndrome. I was just kind of like, yeah, whatever. I did some movies. Mm. Who cares? So when people were fans of mine, I was like, that's weird. It felt, it felt strange. It felt almost intrusive. It felt like uh, when they sing happy birthday to you in a restaurant. Oh yeah. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> that look you have to give. And you're just like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what it felt like. So, so, and I don't think it was, it was really until I was probably in college or maybe even my twenties that I was like, I'd be like, this is nice, but weird. But now I'm just like, it's nice. It is really nice. I take it for what it is that I got to be in a movie that um, that means so much to people, and uh, and you know has it, it really has this uh, the significance for people. And yeah, I, I, but I also think that children and and teenagers probably can't even really grasp that. No, no, that it's not something. No, it's too big for them. And do you think as well that because I remember reading that you um, you were once asked um, on a red carpet from a reporter um, about Hugh Grant's arrest? Oh, yeah. Obviously, at that age, at that age, you're not trained in your head to just go, "Mate, come on, really? That's what you want to ask someone yeah, my age?" Um, exactly. But how do you like now? I, I, I'd like to think now you wouldn't see that. Yeah, I, I think people are warier about children now. They they kind of understand that they need to respect children's boundaries, 
uh, I, I do think that there's, so I think in some ways it's better for children. Like I remember people saying inappropriate things about, you know, the stranger things kids or something. Yeah. And there was immediately a backlash, like, how dare you say yeah. this? And, and that made me feel good because I was like, okay, good. They're being protected. Yeah. And that, that definitely made me, me feel good. I think it's also harder for them just because the attention is so ubiquitous and you can't really get off social media. And I think the ones who are doing the best are generally people who are, um, who uh, don't spend much time online or they they have people who do it for them. That I think is very good. The ones I tend to worry about more are like people who are stars on apps, like uh, like teenagers on TikTok. Those, I worry for their safety and their, their, you know, because that's so much pressure. If you're on a Netflix show, an HBO show, you know, if you're, if you're Finn Wolfhard or, you know, you're Daphne Keene or somebody like that, people are probably going to be protecting you. You know, you might have actors in your family who know what it's like, so they can protect you, they can help you, they can understand you. But if you are, you know, just a kid in, you know, the, the middle of England or the middle of the U.S. who doesn't have family who understands this, who who goes viral on TikTok, it's going to be hard because your parents don't know. You don't have an industry looking out for you. I mean, granted, there are a lot of dangers in the industry mm. as well, but I will say personally that I felt protected on film sets. I felt safe on mm -hmm. film sets. I think there are definitely things that could be done to make them safer, but uh, when it's that at least is a regulated industry, yeah. you know, there's, there's a guild, there's, there's a guild, there's rules, there's papers you have to sign. They're not as enforced as they should be a lot of the time, but there's, there's something there to protect you. But with, with apps and, you know, YouTube and things like that, you know, if you're a 16 year old YouTube star, you know, you don't know what you're getting into. People might say horrible things about you. Your, your life could be over for just a, a simple mistake that you made. And that is, uh, that is something that concerns me. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like when we were, uh, when we've been speaking on to different people on our podcast, we spoke to a few ex uh, castmates of ours and we spoke about how obviously mm -hmm. their experience online and the internet, because when we were, when we were doing Potter, I suppose, I mean, the internet was about obviously, but it wasn't, like now, it wasn't like <laughs> it was on dial-up. Yeah, it was an old dial-up phone. Yeah. Remember when, you, when your phone would be engaged when you use it? Um, yes. Anyway, uh, yeah. back in my day. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember posting about the Harry Potter movie on on the AOL forums. You know, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> on MySpace and stuff like that. But yeah, you know, we'd be exposed to a degree about what people were saying about the films or you know scenes they liked or and stuff like that. But a few of the guys were saying how. They were obviously when they were cast a bit later on, or when they joined the the films later on, a lot of negativity behind it. Mm -hmm. Like they they've, they've cast mm -hmm. this person to do yeah. that, and it's almost very intrusive. Was that ever an issue with you? Were you ever exposed to that type of stuff? And I suppose in the same loose connection, um, like reviews and stuff, like like personal reviews about your performance and stuff, or was that more of a protected from you type thing? Yeah. There was a magazine that uh, that was very mean about me. There was a writer at a magazine that. Uh, I, I will call uh, uh, entertainment twice a fortnight. Um, <laughs> and uh, there was a writer there who was really mean about me. And the thing is that I actually called her out for it on Twitter a couple years ago. And she was like, that's funny. I deserve it. And then a couple years ago, I wrote for or I did a I did like a seminar for an organization called Girls Right Now that encourages uh, girls to write. And I, I talked to them about telling storytelling and things like that. And at the end, she came up to me. She was there. She worked as a mentor there. And she was like, I just want you to know that I think you're wonderful. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh, uh, thank you. And she's like, I feel so bad for, you know, what I said about a six year old. Yeah. But I think that they don't see they didn't see people as no. people. It, it got worse when I learned that I could look myself up on the Internet. That was really, really bad because there was a lot of things there that I still wish that I could unsee and things that children should be protected from. And um, I do think now that people are nicer about it. People are nicer about children and about their, their acting abilities. And, but it was very strange to have people talking about like my face and my body. And especially when I, I hit puberty, which I'm, I mean, I saw this happen for the kids in the Harry Potter films too, where, and if you're a girl, you are either, you are either uh, put on a countdown list till people, till you turn, you know, till you come of age, which we know happened with yeah. Emma Watson. Which is perverse and weird in itself, isn't it? Yeah. It's disgusting. It's incredibly disgusting. And I, I, I remember that happening with Emma Watson and just being like, guys, what are you doing? This is horrible. And, um, and uh, I mean, she seems to have come out above it all, but that can't be good for you. And it's, it's, you're either, you're either that, or you are seen as ugly and useless because, you know, you're an awkward teenager and, uh, 
and you don't matter anymore. So I was more on that end because I was I was an awkward teenager. And by that time, like I had a single father and he didn't know a lot, know a lot about clothes and makeup. So uh, he couldn't really help me through it. He also had a full time job and four other children. You know, my mother had been the one to to really direct those things to help me with my hair, too. And my mom was a very like a very much more in control woman and um, and and good with being the face of things. And my father is much more like, no, I'm behind the scenes. So that was kind of a struggle for him because it didn't uh, it, it didn't suit him naturally. Uh, and uh, and he had so many other things to worry about being a widower father with, you know, five kids and a full time job and a child who was in the movie industry. Uh, so so I can't fault my father for any of that. But yeah, I got a lot of, oh, she's not cute anymore. So she's useless. She's not cute anymore. So let's talk about her face and her body and spread rumors about yeah. her and all of these things. And obviously, that really hurt. And it still has affected me. Well, it would do, wouldn't it? Yeah. And it warped my perceptions. Yeah. And, and I think it's going to warp your perceptions when people are talking about your face and your body, whether it's sexualizing you or whether it's, you know, you know, saying horrible things about you and saying that you're you're ugly. Mm. Like and, and there definitely is, I think, a degree of sexism there. But uh, but I also know that this does happen to boys. Well, I was going to ask. I mean, obviously, yeah. obviously, it does happen to to both sexes. I'd say that obviously it's more likely to go from women to be negative mm-hmm. as opposed to boys yeah. are like, oh, they've turned into, or he's turned into this, he's turned into that, you know? Yeah. It is, it is a double standard. Yeah, I've been both on lists saying that I am ugly now and that I am beautiful now. And I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. <laughs> but yeah, I've been, I've, been, uh, I've been on both of those lists and it's just clickbait. And that's, I mean, that's why I titled my book, Where Am I Now? Because there yeah. are so many Where Is She Now? articles. And uh and it, it did make me self-conscious, I think. And it did make me feel like, um, you know, like, like I, I wasn't going to be getting very many roles. And I was already kind of checked out of Hollywood by being a teenager. Like mm-hmm. I was more into theater. I was more into performing on stage. And, uh, and I really loved doing voiceover. So I was doing more voiceover work. Uh, and, and I'm still doing voiceover now. And there is a part of myself that's just like, people ask me sometimes if I want to be in films. And I'm like, you know what? I don't want to have to go on a huge crash diet. I don't want to have to have a nose job. I don't want to have to do these things. And unfortunately, in Hollywood, I probably would. I mean, I think it affects, you know, you regardless of your gender. But I do think that it can be particularly hard on if you're if you're a woman, if you're feminine, you know, that that mm. it can be very hard. Mm. So um, I do actually think that it's very funny that uh, obviously you guys know Daniel Radcliffe. And I have a couple of friends in common with him, but we've never met. But um, he was born, I think, either the day before or after me. And um, we are about the same height. <laughs> right, Maybe yeah. he's a little taller. <laughs> and we have we have basically the same hair and eye color. And um, I found out also, and we both played beloved children's British, you know, beloved British children's book characters. And yep. um, we're both we're both half Irish and half Jewish. And uh, I recently found out that we are both allergic to nickel. Um, and surely there's a casting going like, to happen here. I know, I know. People have been like. <laughs> One of my friends is like, how have you guys not been in Twelfth Night together? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. And I'm. It, it's funny. I have friends who've worked with him. And I feel like that is like one thing I would come out of like semi-film retirement for is if, and I don't know if he'd be up for it, but um, but if, if he was, I'm like, I'm like, we need to play twins at some point <laughs> because he yeah. looks more like me than my actual siblings. My siblings are like... <laughs> They're like, have you asked dad if maybe he had a British love child, you know? (laughs) (laughs) In Matilda, in Mrs. Doubtfire, you had some amazing actors, like especially comedy actors for Robin Williams, Sally Field, Danny Vito. What was, have you got any good, good memories or stories with those guys? Yes. uh, Robin Williams was incredibly kind. He was a very fun guy. He was just the consummate performer, loved to, you know, tell jokes. And the thing is, he was very quiet and, and kind of shy when he wasn't performing, but then when he had an audience, he just came alive, you know, and he would, he would make like little hand puppets like this. He'd come up to me and have two little guys talking to his house going like, I don't like you. You smell like poop. And you know, well, there's no toilet paper at my house, which, you know, is, is amazing. And Sally was just lovely. I remember Sally during my big, you know, where his goddamn kids too scene would, she would rehearse with me and she would, she'd be like, good, good. You scared me this time. Danny DeVito was really wonderful. His his whole family was really wonderful. I mean, and I I filmed right before and right after my mother died, and um, and Danny DeVito and Rio Perlman were incredibly kind, and they would they would do things. And I'm lucky. I also had a lot of like nannies and babysitters and people on the set who were helping my mom and uh, helping my family. Mm. 
but they would, you know, my mom would be, she would be having, she'd be having cancer treatments or something. And they would be like, why don't you come over and we can, um, and, and we can go see Beauty and the Beast or we can watch a movie. They had a little guest house on their property that they turned into a mini movie theater and there were couches mm. and there was, you know, concessions. So you could get candy there too. And, uh, and they would show movies there. Uh, they had a, they had a secret passageway built into their house. They had secret passageways and they had a pool and a trampoline and pinball games. And it was a kid's paradise and their kids were really fun. Their kids were really fun and cute and they had dogs and cats and, uh, and I loved it. They, and they felt like, they felt like my aunt and uncle and Danny was always teaching me ridiculous jokes and he taught me how to do pratfalls and things like that. And, uh, there's a scene where he like grabs Matilda by the hair and he was like, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a fist and then you put your hand on top of it. And, uh, and so he taught me all these little tips and tricks and he wanted to get me involved. You know, when I was nervous to do the dancing scene, he said that, uh, everybody on set had to dance. So, and there's a doll in Matilda that I actually helped design. There's a doll that, uh, they're like, do you think Matilda could have made a doll with, you know, some of the things that are around the house and so I did a drawing and they took my drawing and made her into a real doll. So that was my first design <laughs> job. <laughs> After my mother died, I went on to film a film called uh, A Simple Wish, which uh, was Mar- with Martin Short and Kathleen Turner. And they were both really wonderful, too. I-, I was very lucky. And I was going through a really hard time, obviously. But mm. Michael Ritchie, who was on that set, he was an actor who, who uh, you know, he did a lot of big things in the 70s and 80s. And he worked very much well with kids and I haven't talked about him as much because that was just such a hard time in my life. And I know where I'm like, did I act like a brat then? You know, was I, I probably did. I, I'm not as happy with my behavior there. I didn't have my mom there. I felt kind of lost, but he was wonderful as well because and he and his family kind of adopted me too. I was so lucky. I really was. And there were people who, you know, they weren't the best to, to work with, but I don't talk about them if they were. No. I mean, I'm sure no, people yeah. ask you because you worked, you guys worked with like every amazing British actor. With, with Dame Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman and yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was one of those things, I suppose, like when we were filming, I remember when we first started filming, it didn't actually come into our head of how grandiose these guys are in the industry, yeah. like what big, you know, what great big people these are. And I, I always remember the uh, the very first read-through, we were sat next to um, Rick Mayle, who played, who was cast as Peeves, the poltergeist. Now, Rick Mayle was oh, yes. a, a comedic actor, and we, we grew up watching a show the called... The Young Ones, The right? Young Ones, yeah. right. Yes! One of the best shows ever made, so if you haven't seen it, please watch it. It is it is wild. There's just so much in it. It's hilarious. Yeah, it's fantastic. We, we grew up watching him do his, do his stuff, and we were sat next to him, and I, there were all these great people in the room, and I remember yeah. sat next to Rick Mayle, and I'm just thinking, this is... I can't imagine being so excited, <laughs> but at the same time, you didn't want to be like, hello, how are you? Da, da, da. And yeah, exactly. he was just like very much, hello, like, you know, as, as you go. And I remember we did our first um, our first line or whatever, where it's um, honesty woman, call yourself our mother when we're on King Cross Station. <laughs> and he very over the top. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, like really encouraging. And that's my my one takeaway from the whole thing is sometimes people say don't meet your heroes, but sometimes when you do, they're absolutely yes. fantastic. Yeah, I always wondered about that. I, I grew up watching a lot of like British shows, so I knew a lot of these actors already. You know, my my um, my my mom loved uh, she loved Anthony Hopkins, so I, I I'd seen like Anthony Hopkins in movies with Emma Thompson, so I loved Emma Thompson, and you know, and mm. Alan Rickman and Dame Maggie Smith. So that definitely made that made Harry Potter for me, I think too in addition to just me liking Harry Potter. And I do remember people telling me at the time, they were like, Omari, you should play Hermione. And I was like, I'm not British, guys. It's not going to work. <laughs> also, I've already played like one, one like met smart, magical child. Like, I don't think they're going to have me play another one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that you do tend to get, you do tend to get typecast. Like I used a lot of big words growing up. So I was often cast as like, very as like very smart girls and I've always I've wondered if like Emma Watson feels the same way like people often expect me to be smarter than I am (laughs) or more well-read than I am and it's like I haven't actually read Moby Dick I'm sorry (laughs) you know one of these days I actually will but uh but I haven't yet read it sorry uh people people Mm. expect me to be smarter than I am I think because Matilda's a genius but um but that also benefits yeah. me. It's nice to have people think you're smart. I was going to say, <laughs> sometimes you could say something not knowing if it's true or not, but you'll get away with it. <laughs> yes, exactly. 
but something I mean obviously something something that you do you do know a lot about is your charity work that you you do and especially oh, yeah. work with the mental health charities uh, like yes. including the International OCD Foundation can you can you tell us yeah. about first of all your work with them and how that came about and just anything else you want to add to it as well well the thing is I also feel like I probably never was going to be normal because of the way that like my family was and 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 I mean like my mother's side of the family you know they were they were eastern european russian jews who had been through a lot of trauma and when they came to america there was a lot of i think probably there was a lot of like genetic stuff that that you know that happens when you you've spent you know you've had a really traumatic history and i think sometimes it's kind of like until you get to a place that's safe for you you don't know how terrible things have been and that's when yeah. because you're just in survival mode and and also like the same qualities that allow you to be in survival mode in in a country where you're being persecuted for your beliefs and for who you are, those don't always play well in a place where you're not as persecuted as much. But I feel like in some ways, like being anxious can make you can kind of protect you. You know, like if you're germaphobic, you're probably not going to get sick. So I think that mm. with them, they were very anxious people. And, uh, and there were there was just kind of a lot of intergenerational trauma and stuff. And that led to me being a very anxious child. And so I was never going to be totally normal because I was always going to be a little too nervous, a little too distracted, a little too uh, you know, anxious. Like I, I worried about things a lot when I was a child. And I do think in some ways that made me not a better actor, but like a more, maybe a more sensitive actor because like, like I could cry on cue because I could make myself cry just thinking about things. And, uh, yeah. And but I also was incredibly honest. I, I couldn't lie. I was compulsively honest. Um, so I never used my crying to get out of trouble or anything like that. But yeah, I was I was worried a lot. You know, like I remember digging a hole in in like the playground with some friends of mine and then crying because I was worried that somebody would trip and fall and hurt themselves and it would be my fault. Oh, wow. And, and I remember as soon as we finished filming Matilda, I started or actually probably a few months after I started having really bad panic attacks. And it was because I think that filming Matilda had been kind of like a cocoon for me, you know, and, and yeah. afterwards I sort of had to face, you know, the letdown and the fact that my mother was ill. And so I started getting really obsessive and I would like obsess about my pets. I would obsess about my sister. I would, you know, anything I could do uh, to not think about my mother being sick. And I started washing my hands all of the time. And I really went through a couple years that were just hellish, just on and off. And then eventually when I was 12, I read a book about a girl with obsessive compulsive disorder. So I read this book called Kissing Doorknobs. And I remember crying when I read it because I was like, oh, this is why. This is why I'm nervous all the time. This is why I'm fidgety. This is why I wash my hands all the time. This is why I, I, I worry about things that my friends don't. You know, this is, mm -hmm. this is what makes me weird. And, uh, and so I took the book to, you know, the counselors at school and said, I want to get help. And they were like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I was very determined to get help. And you were 12 as well at this point. Yeah, I was 12 years old. But I also think that probably being in film made me a little bit more more likely to kind of stand up for myself and take action for myself because I'd felt empowered on film sets. Sure. Well, I, was, I, was, I mean, I was, saying, I was saying that because obviously saying that you're 12 is obviously sometimes you think when you get help is normally way down the line. Yeah. As opposed to, as you say, realizing sometimes there's never a, a right time yeah or a wrong time to start is that like as long as you can do it. and also as well i mean the fact that it's obsessive compulsive i think some people think just ocd is i have to fold my socks i have to keep my office tidy do you know what i mean like that's that's a that's a really broad misconception it is and thank you for saying that because yeah that really gets on my nerves it is an anxiety condition people people love to talk about the preciseness of it but they don't talk about the anxiety and a lot of the stereotypes aren't true or it, it varies from person to person and and it's it's inconsistent like i I will wash my hands obsessively, but uh, my but my house is a mess, you know. But people would be like, "How can you have OCD? You're so messy." And I was like, "Well, it's it's specific things. I mean, my hands, my face, my hair. I will I will wash a million times, but uh, but you know, my clothes, you know, they're they're on the floor. It's not that big of a deal for me." And I thought about coming forward as a child, but my parents and and the people around me were like, "This would be way too much pressure." So I just told myself, yeah. "Okay, well, if I'm still in the public eye in any way as an adult, I will be open about it." And I also found the more open I was about it, the more accepting people were. If I treated it like a big, scary secret, people were like, oh, are you okay? But if I was just like, yeah, I have OCD, it's under control, they'll be like, oh, okay. 
you know, they understand it's like diabetes or something. Sure. You can't be ashamed of having diabetes. You just be like, yeah, I, I stick myself with needles sometimes because my body doesn't produce enough insulin. And with OCD, it's just like, yeah, because of my genetics and the way my brain works, uh, this just happens. So I always knew that I wanted to to be a mental health activist. And I, and I have been a mental health activist now since I've been back in the public eye. And, um, and it's important to me. And I've had people say, I mean, I've worked with the International OCD Foundation. Okay to Say is one about uh, mental health destigmatization. Mm-hmm. My other friend has one called You Are Okay, Project You Are Okay, which is about like making videos and resources for uh, children and teens with mental illness. And everybody feels anxious sometimes. Everybody feels depressed sometimes. So I think that these things could help people anyway. Mm-hmm. I want people to know that that's... Uh, that you know that they can get help and there are people who understand. So I I feel like this is something that it happened to me and I mean I don't think that film made it better or worse. I do think that it might have exacerbated my perfectionism a little bit because as you know on sets you have to get things right the first time uh, over and over again. <laughs> you know you, you have to get yeah, things right with so, the same face exactly it, with the exact same face the same the exact same way yeah. Could you tell me what it was like when you finally got the diagnosis that you are suffering with OCD? It was one of the best days of my life because I think a lot of people worry that there's something wrong with them, but I knew there was something wrong with me. I mean, I knew and I wanted to get treatment and I wanted to get help and it was an incredible relief. I was going to say, I think part of it as well is breaking that stigma that you think that say anything to do with mental health is either going to be, you know, to use an old phrase, you're going to be dragged off to the loony bin with your arms yeah. wrapped around you yeah. or you're going to have to go sit on some fancy chaise lounge with some guy with a clipboard. <laughs> not really like that. <laughs> It's not like that. And I, that was when I was very young, I was afraid of those two. I was afraid that if I was quote crazy, I would be taken away to uh, different places and I would be, I'd be separated from my friends and my family. And, uh, but I mean, I, I wasn't, and, uh, you know, it does definitely need to be reformed. There's things that need to be changed and helped, but, uh, I do think people now have a greater understanding of mental health. Cause I've also talked a little bit about having, um, some physical health problems too. And now I'm just kind of like, am I just the sick girl? Is that what I am? Is that, you know, what people know me as? But after a while, I was like, who cares? Who cares if I am the sick girl? At least, you know, I have I have a big mouth. I have a big platform. I might as well use it for good. Well, talking about, talking about using your platform for good, obviously, like today, you're a writer. Your book, Where Am I Now, was about your journey. Mm-hmm. But now you've been writing for podcasts too. Is there something like different in the creative experience compared to acting? Or is it all from the same pot and it's just put on a different canvas? It's different, I think. I think writing, for me, I feel like I have way more control. If you go back to my early childhood, the reason that I was performing and like was because I was making up stories. Uh, I was making up stories and I was acting them out. So I had little one-woman shows all around my house that I would force my brothers and my mom to listen to. And, uh, and that was really how they came to realize that I liked performing. It was mostly that I liked performing my own stuff. So... I think after a while, I did get kind of disenchanted, kind of jaded with acting because I felt like I was tired of being told what to do. And especially when you're a teenager, you don't always want to be told what to do. So I I felt kind of like, I want to break away from this because this is getting tedious, just doing the same thing over and over again. It's not fun. Uh, And I mean, sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. It's a job, you know. And I do think that I was kind of bitter about it and I was kind of frustrated with it for a long time. but I also think, and, and like I've said, I do feel like a lot of the best directors I worked with really engaged my creative process as well, because they recognized that I was a creative person in other ways. So uh, that I think was was really good. And I was glad, I'm really glad that I had that encouragement. But yeah, writing feels much more in control for me. And I do feel like I'm a bit of a control freak, just just my personality type, and probably because I'm an anxious person. But I do think one thing that I've liked, that, that I've definitely realized about myself in the past few years, like I, I learned this working on Passenger List and I learned this touring with Welcome to Night Vale, is that I like being part of a team. Mm. I, I found that like I sometimes I really miss being on a film set. And there were years where I was like, oh, it's so tedious. But then when I get back on a film set, I'm like, oh, this feels like home. Like uh, yeah. I talk about the rolling chorus, which is everybody going, you know, rolling, rolling, you know, sound speed, yep. you know, background action. <laughs> it's like a bad echo, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. And, and it's yeah, it's the rolling chorus. And that feels very comforting to me. And like the smell of construction, you know, of of sawdust and and lights and those things, it really does take me back. So, so I do want to, I think, go back into film more, um, not as an actor necessarily, but, you know, behind the scenes, I'm like, maybe I do want to produce, I do want to screenwrite. I miss working with people. I miss, I miss that kind of camaraderie that you get on film sets. In one sentence, what does normal 
mean to you? Oh, I mean, I've lived a lot of really weird lives and I've, I've lived, I, I mean, not lives, but I guess in some ways I have lived a lot of weird lives, but, um, but I also don't think there's anything wrong with being normal. Like there's still a part of me that's like, like, I, I'm just like, no, I'd like to like have a nice house, maybe have children, maybe have a dog, you know, maybe, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe just kind of like, maybe be married, maybe not, you know, just kind of live my life. You know, I, I have, I have a life that I think is pretty simple. I mean, a normal day for me is like, you know, I get up, I have a pot of tea, you know, I, I, I make a pot of tea. I, I write for a while. I exercise. I watch Netflix. I play with the cats. I paint my nails. It's, you know, I read a book to fall asleep. It's, it's all very boring. It's just that sometimes also people want me on podcasts to talk about how I met the queen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, just drop that in there. Again. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that being said, you've kind of answered my next question. So what is the most normal thing about you? Um, I think I'm pretty boring, actually. <laughs> I think that I live a pretty normal <laughs> life. Uh, I'm, I mean, apart from I'm, I met the queen. Yes, apart from, <laughs> apart from meeting the queen and all that. I, I, I think that the things that I want are very normal. Like I, I like getting recognition for my work. But I also like I'm I'm happy to be on the C list, the D list for the rest of my life. I think that everything I like, I, I'm not I'm not too experimental when it comes to music or when it comes to adventures. I'm not very adventurous. I'm I'm too timid to be or I'm not timid, but I'm scared of things, you know. I, I'm never gonna go I'm never gonna go skydiving or something like that. What would you say is the least normal thing? Um I think that I have this this, you know, trove of like ridiculous weird stories. And, and, you know, of people that I've met, of places that I've been to. Um, And I think that people look up to me. That is a very strange thing. My sister sometimes says that I am a big sister to the world. Yeah. uh, Because there are still so many little girls who look up to me. Yeah. And that, that can be difficult. That can be, that can be a heavy burden, but it's also, it's also an amazing thing. So I I do think that I am, I do live a normal kind of boring life. Um, and like, I, I love my nieces and nephews so much. I, I think like the way that I interact with them is is kind of a good example where we just play games and we just talk and we just do whatever. And then I remember when, when one of them watched Matilda, apparently like they were just laughing and laughing the whole time because they were just like, that's Auntie Mara. And, and it's so yeah. silly to see her there. There's the Mara that we know. And then there's the Mara that the rest of the world knows. Amazing. So I've got this thing, which I've now decided to call the quick fire 3am questions. Because- yes. Basically, the ultimate answer comes at 3 a.m. when you can't sleep. So what is your favorite book? Oh, um, let's see. Um, I really liked Aurora by Kim Stanley Robinson. I really liked The Fifth Season uh, by N.K. Jemisin. Um, Joanne Beard's The Boys of My Youth is a big one for me. Um, I, I loved the His Dark Material series growing up. Uh, loved Absolutely loved those books. Um, probably The Subtle Knife was my favorite. Um, Good Omens. Good Omens was a huge one for me for a very long time. Those are those are some of my favorite books. But not but not Moby Dick. No, <laughs> I have a copy of Moby Dick. I have a copy of Moby Dick, <laughs> and I'm like things are still you know I'm I'm like things are still kind of slow around here. I think I'm going to I think I actually am going to read Moby Dick in the next few months. I feel like I have no excuse not to. I have a copy. Yeah. I have the free time. I might as well. Did you kind of have that thing when the first lockdown came on? Everyone thought well. If, when I, there's always that one thing you think when I have time to do it, I'll do it. Right. I had time and I didn't do plenty of things. That was what happened. I was, I told myself I was going to learn another language and, uh, and, and I can say a few things. James did that as well, actually. Yeah. Yes, James yes. did that as well. James, James, tu hablo español? <laughs> si. Um, yeah, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what is your favorite food? Oh, um, let's see. Uh, um, I make really good chocolate chip cookies. Uh, those are probably my favorite. What is your favorite song? Oh, um, let's see. I have I have a whole list of favorite songs. Um, let's see. I love Time Bomb by the Old 97s. I love B.O.B. by Outkast. I love anything by Martha and the Vandellas. I love soul music so much. Right now, probably my favorite song is um, is Don't Leave Me This Way. But it's the, it's the, I'm trying to remember what his name is. It keeps coming up on my Spotify. It's with uh, Teddy Pendergrass and this other, this other singer. Right now, that's my favorite version. Not the, it, okay. it's a little less disco. It's a little more funk. That's in my head now, that song. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that. <laughs> um, what is your favorite film? Oh, um, Children of Men with our friend Pam Ferris. Um, yeah. this, uh, Seven Samurai or anything Kurosawa, I think. Um, All About Eve, uh, Clueless. I love Clueless. And and I love Alfonso Cuarón too, who you guys got to work with. We did, yeah. Yep. So I think that yep. I think that yeah, I think that the third Harry Potter movie might be my favorite, actually. 
actually because of him. I remember when we when we first met uh, Alfonso, we had a, a meeting with him, and we were sat, we sat down and we're like, this is a bit formal, isn't it? Sat down with the director, like, and he he had he yeah. had he had the script together, and he he said we just want to run the lines. Um, with, I think it was the Marauders map scene, actually. Yeah, it was, yeah. And this is before filming had even taken place, and we were just we were just sat talking through it. And he said, uh, and he saw how we were literally cutting each other up to yeah. to get the lines in. And he said, I like that. And he just literally got a pen <laughs> and started writing through the whole script. And that's where, from that film, uh, Fred and George always finish each other's sentences pretty much. Because yeah. I, I suppose that is a twin sibling thing anyway. Yeah. If I'm talking, I don't want him to get a word in. <laughs> Yes. As you can yes. tell, as he's just cut me up. Uh, so, yeah. And finally, Mara, what is your favorite quote? And it can be from any TV or film or anything else, any other quote that you have. Um, I like Bertrand Russell's, um, I would never die for my beliefs because I might be wrong. Um, <laughs> because, because I feel like I'm wrong a lot. I really want to believe in in the things that I am, but I, I, I do. There's also the Dorothy Parker quote, um, she basically says, like, if I continue on in the way that I'm going, um, I will I will leave a mark on the world. But what if I don't? And what if I do? And I love that because that's something that I feel a lot, too. Like, am I going to leave a mark on the world? Well, what if I don't? But what if I do? So, yeah, yeah I feel that pressure uh, a lot of the time. Yeah. Mara, thank you so much for thank joining so us much. today. And yes. uh, really, really good fun. Yes. Yes. So it's so lovely to talk to you. You're you're both so kind and polite and uh, and you play off each other so well. It's so fun to watch. It's yeah. all an act. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, James. I need to talk now. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. I was going to say, is there one um, of you who talks more than the other? Yes, Oliver. Definitely. If you can't 100%. tell, I'm doing a good job. Yeah. <laughs> but no, honestly, Mara, thank you so much for joining thank us you today. So much. I've really enjoyed it. And if you're ever in England, please, please give us a shout. Yes. I, I was supposed to be this uh, this past year, but I wasn't. But uh, yeah, hopefully I will be again soon. I, I would love to come visit. <laughs> Now, in terms of setting the bar for this season and what interviewing is going to be like, it's right up here right now. It's right up there. That was absolutely amazing. Thank you so, so much to Mara for her time. Yeah, and I think also the fact that we've never met Mara before. No. But it's like we've known her all our life. It was so easy to talk to. She was such a lovely person. And amazing how many similarities we had, obviously, growing up on the films. We both saw the same casting director when we, when all three of us went for our, inter, our respective auditions, work with uh, Paul Dupre-Pesman and Chris Columbus. Amazing. And what a nice person. And again, great for her as well for talking about her OCD condition yep. and getting help for that and just encouraging people to own any kind of mental health issues that someone is going through to you know help help go about tackling it. Exactly. So if you have been affected, by anything that we've mentioned today. Have a look in our bio because we will be putting a link for any more info and stuff like that that is there available. Can I now get into my first four did you knows of the season? Okay, go on then. So I've been looking forward to this. Right. So, you know, I'm a big fan of hedgehogs. I do. I do. Yes. I'm also a fan of another animal, which is on the complete other end of hedgehogs. Hang on, an opposite to a hedgehog. Pretty much. So, Sony was quick and spiky. Is it something like a slug, which is slow and slimy? No. I'm on about elephants. Of course. Did you know? I've got, an, I've got, a, I've got a. Did you know for you about elephants? Go on. Did you? It's quite. It's quite a sad. Did you know? Well, I don't hear it then. But did you know that elephants are the only animals who can actually pass away due to a broken heart? Well, thanks for the uplifting one here, Oliver. Bloody well, hell. It's true, it's true, it's true, which is why poaching and everything like that is wrong. Well, thanks for killing the mood, Oliver. Anyway, anyway, sorry, James, go on. You're dizzy, you know. Yeah, thanks. So, did you know an elephant is the only animal with four knees? Fantastic, that is. Yes, very good, very good. And also, did you know an elephant, they're the only mammal that cannot jump? Really? Have you ever seen an elephant jump? No, I've seen an elephant fly, though. I've seen an elephant fly. I've seen a horse fly. I've seen a dragon fly. I ain't never seen an elephant fly. Little bit of a Dumbo joke there, if anyone's listening. <laughs> so lockdown hit you hard last year, hey? Um, <laughs> that's me done on elephants now. But okay, I know that elephants can get stressed at some times. Ooh. It's my little segue. Okay. But did you know that stressed is desserts backwards? Wow. So what a way to deal with stress. 
don't mess with the stress, mess with the desserts. Is that what you mean? Something like that. And another random one, because the the guy over the road from me is having a lot of building work done at the moment. And he's okay. We get on. But did you know the patron saint of bricklayers is St. Stephen? See, I don't get this, right? The whole patron saint stuff. The patron saint of this, the patron patron saint of of bricklayers. So what would you want to be the patron saint of? I would want to be grumpy. You'd be the you'd be the the patron saint. Well, no, but no, but James, 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 James. The patron saint is supposed to watch over. Yeah, so, you'd watch over anyone well, who's slightly happy. You'd be like, no, don't be happy. Moan. Give it a little rant. I would be. I would be. I would be the patron saint for all those people who are just. You know, when you have a moment where you're just blind with just. You're just. You're just mute with rage. You probably know this feeling more than me. And you're like literally shaking there, like, like that. Uh, I would, yeah, that would be me. That would be me. Okay. Well, there you go. That was my did you knows of the season. Glad to have them back. And you had your little rant. There you go. All good. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't really a rant, but I don't rant that much, you know. Mm. Although I did have a bit of a moment the other day, right? I was washing my car. And why is it when you wash your car, there's always some prat who's walking by, who has to think, do mine when you're done. Uh-huh. Or what time you work until her like that type of stuff, and you just like get the hose. Not there you go. So I suppose if you want to rant, that's mine. If you see me washing the car anywhere, don't ask me when I can do yours. Peace and love on this podcast. Well, everybody, thank you very much for joining us here on Normal Not Normal. We've had such a great time today, and we've got a lot of good content and shows for you to see and listen in the coming weeks. So we really hope you enjoy them. Exactly. So that's it. If anyone says. Double trouble. That was great. But this is normal, not normal. We'll see you very, very soon. I've been Oliver Phelps. And I've been James Phelps. But let me just leave you with one thing. Alexa, play normal, not normal. Alexa, order 200 litres of milk. Thanks, everybody. I've been James Phelps. He's been Oliver Phelps. We'll see you next week. And may I just add? No. If you like our podcast, please feel free to subscribe. Why? Why? Because it gets the clicks. Normal Not Normal is a stable production.